and get started. Um, welcome. Good morning. Um, I know this is the last day of YLT, and um, it's been a full week for many of you. Um, lots of good content, but I know that um, we can often feel um, exhausted even um, in good content. So I, um, I want to just go ahead and completely confess one thing to you, that the handout you got um, is going to look very different than what we're going to walk through today. Not completely different, um, because it is very similar, but um, I did do some changing around um, the last few weeks. Um, the reason for that is um, I have a really hard time leaving anything in the same place for very long. So if you come to my house, I am constantly moving furniture, constantly shifting around, um, organizing. Goodwill bags are going out the door all the time, and my husband um, bought a basket one day, and he brought it home, and he stuck it in our kitchen. He said, I am so tired of not knowing <laughs> where you put things that anything in this basket is my safe space. Do not touch it. So that is what has come um, out of this problem that I have, and I'm still working on it, but um, you are now victims of it. So if you want to write on the worksheet on the side, please go for it, but if you have a digital copy, you can delete and shift things around. Um, so one thing about this seminar that I want to be very transparent about, but I'm excited that when you guys got here, you all should have received this book probably in your bags. Um, and so um, this book is called Pursuing a Heart of Wisdom, Counseling Teenagers Biblically. It's by Dr. John Kwasney. Um, RYM's very own John Parrott wrote the foreword in this book. Um, and uh, just a little bit. John Kwasney is a mentor of mine. He and his wife have been for the last seven or eight years. Um, I'm very grateful for his work, for his counsel, for his teaching, um, for their friendship to my family. Um, my husband and I had the opportunity to read this book a couple years ago and endorse it for him. So um, you're going to, if you have this book, I intentionally am borrowing the framework of his book in this topic today because since you have this book, Anything that kind of doesn't really flesh out well, you can go home and you can read this. So for the sake of your just consistency, you have this book um, that you can refer back to. Um, the other thing that I kind of want to plug, um, an additional resource for you um, that I think is very helpful that helped me in this talk is called The Dynamic Heart in Daily Life, Connecting Christ to Human Experience. It's by Jeremy Pierre. So this is more of like a 2.0. Like if you want to go a little bit deeper in understanding the heart and how you are counseling um, and discipling the people in your congregation and your youth ministry, this is a great book to kind of take you to a different, um, a different level. Okay, so my name is Morgan Walker, and I am really excited that I get to have this time with you. Um, I want to be very transparent on the front end and um, kind of, just kind of call a few things out on the floor with, um, with you guys. Um, I know that there is a spectrum of counseling philosophies out there, um, even within the church, probably even within this room. Um, there is a spectrum. I feel very grateful that I've had the opportunity to be trained in three of the various camps that are out there. I have been trained in secular psychology. I've been trained in integration counseling, and I've also been trained in biblical counseling. Um, and so I like to think that I have been able to kind of get the best of those, of those camps. Um, but one of the things that I have seen in my work, unfortunately, is this division um, in the church. I've seen pastors tell me that they feel less equipped 
because the professionals are claiming that they have the answers to their problems, so just refer your people to me. You've probably heard that. <laughs> Counselors are feeling frustrated because they're having to do a lot of repair work when people from local churches are coming to the, their office for bad counsel. And often what's neglected in that is we confuse someone's suffering for their sin <laughs> or vice versa. So the bottom line is I am up here standing before you and recognizing that there is probably a spectrum even in here. My hope and my assumption of each one of you in this room is that we all share one Hey, y'all, because I, I have a hard time talking into these. I was telling Randy that I tend to turn my head a lot and I leave the microphone hanging. So just forgive me if I do that in this talk. My husband tells me to do this, but I just can't. So I'm going to put it here um, and just hope that you can hear me. Um, okay, so my biggest passion is that you do not feel paralyzed when um, you face some emotional or mental struggles in your churches. Um, I want you to hear me say as a trained counselor that you should be counseling. You should be in the lives of your people. I want you to be counseling them. Your help and your presence does not exclude the help of others in their lives, but your help and your presence is always needed in their lives. So I believe deeply in a personalized, holistic partnership across different kinds of care. Um, but if you belong to the body of Christ, then you are united to his body. Sorry, if, you're sorry, if you are belong to Christ, then you are united to his body, right? So you're never outside the body of Christ. The body of Christ needs one another, and the people in your congregations need you. So if they need professional care, that doesn't mean that they are outside of the church's care, right? We're always to be partnering and being um, a part of the lives of, of our people when they are suffering. Okay, so we, the church, can step up. And we should. We should enter in and we should care for our people. Because the truth is, the lane in which we are running, we carry the riches of Christ. Right? What better message do we have for our people than that? But I recognize that we are complex people. Right? Our problems are complex. We are complex. Our bodies are complex. Our circumstances are complex. Our hearts are complex. And then you add in puberty and hormone changes, and the complexities get just a little more interesting. But does the unique season of youth where brain is underdeveloped and our hormones are out of whack make our youth any less able to grow in grace? Did our maturity bring us to Christ? <laughs> Did our IQ levels bring us to Christ? No, it's the work of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit our hearts that brought us to Christ. So our youth are never too far from his grace. And I understand there's been much time and research invested in trying to understand our complexity, but so much of it is borrowing truth from God rather than pointing us to him. So 
So bottom line, I don't really care where we fall on the spectrum of counseling philosophies. While I know there's a great deal at stake if we are not critical of our philosophies, but what I want us to do is think biblically about how you are helping your youth and their families when they come to you with a problem, okay? So we are going to walk through this kind of in three ways, how to understand a person, how to interpret a problem, and how to engage a person by aiming for the heart. All right, so how can we view teens biblically? You are probably familiar with these terms. I hope that you are. Mike Emlett uses them in his book. John Quasney uses them in, in his book. But there are four categories that have helped me give a lens for sorting through kind of the various experiences of a person that nuance our counsel to them. So the first is the saint. Um, Christian or not, each person is uniquely made in the image of God. Right? Our teenagers are not just a mass of hormones. They're image bearers. And they're worthy of our time and our care, right? They're also sinners. This really needs no explanation, especially in reform circles. We're pretty comfortable with that word, um, sin. Our, our teenagers need Jesus, no more, no less than you or I. They are sufferers. And I think it's obvious to us that our personal sin can cause personal suffering. But the other side, that is what I said earlier is can be most neglected by the church is that our personal sin is not always why we are suffering, right? We experience the effects of sin in this fallen world. Our bodies experience various forms of weakness and brokenness. And we can be sufferers at the hands of another sinner. And Satan himself, we often don't talk about him very much. I heard John Perry say one time that Satan is worse than any terrorist on the planet today. He is terrorizing us. He is evil. He wants to devour us. So we want to be able to distinguish between a person's sin and their suffering, even if it gets entangled, because often it does. But we want to delicately peel this apart in an undergird of grace. And then lastly, we're students, right? The church is called to be the school of Christ. That's one of the ways in which we are discipling the followers of Christ. So a part of growing in godliness is growing in what we know about God. So our teenagers need to be taught. Families need to be taught. Our theology greatly shapes our view of life, and we need to grow in our theology. So there's a lot more that can be said about these categories, um, but I just wanted you to kind of know the broad stroke of each one of them. So biblical view of problems. Now, there are many opinions about why and how um, problems exist in this world. You know, our psychologies all have something to say about people and our problems. But you and I know that while unmet needs, broken family systems, emotional unintelligence, horrible circumstances all have an effect on us, but they are not the root of problems. If they were the root of our problems, then we would just need to apply their antidotes, right? And then our world would be perfect. But you and I know, and I know as a counselor, as much as we can help in helping heal past wounds, it doesn't bring about a perfect life. Only Christ can do that. So instead, the biblical narrative of God's world Sorry, the biblical narrative of God's word actually gives us the lens in which we understand our problems. So first, we're going to talk about 
the outside circle, which is our physical level. Um, this is the structure of the house. So here we're kind of considering what is built the student or built the person um, or built the family that um, you are that you are counseling. And again, these are kind of tools for your toolbox. I should have said that earlier. Um, when you are going in, these are categories that you can use to think through. So um, our physiology can be put into this, bio biological makeup, what's going on in their bodies that they have no control over, um, chemical imbalances, cognitive development. Did you know that our brains don't fully develop until we're 25? <laughs> so you think about a 15-year-old, like it's 10 more years of brain development going on. Um, <laughs> Many, I mean, yeah, many of our youth workers aren't even, you know, 25 yet. Um, there is a lot um, that that it, that happens in our bodies um, for the first 25 years through our brains. But this also includes our home life, our social influences, our family history. Have they experienced trauma, um, chronic abuse? Are they experiencing grief now? Did they avoid grief in the past? These are all things that that affect kind of the physical um, person, the physical self. Um, I don't want to separate that. I should say the outer man, the, the material, the physical. So our bodies can contribute to the woes of our heart, but our physical bodies can also be triggered by the problems from our hearts. Oops, let me go back. How do I do that? There we go. Okay, sorry, I went too fast. Um, then we're going to move into the first floor, which is the doing level. It's our behavior. It's just the observable um, it's the overflow of our hearts. It's what we are doing. It's measurable. It's tangible. Um, it's often identifiable. It's the fruit, right, that Scripture speaks of. That is the overflow of our hearts. And then the top is our feelings level. Um, it's kind of our emotional level. Um, it's often a product of our doing level, but an expression of our heart level. Um, I kind of like to think of it as a gauge for what's going on in other levels of the body um, or a check engine light when you know, hey, I need to look under the hood. This is something that is telling me something is off. Um, so our emotions can trigger our physical chemistry. Uh, when someone says, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm overwhelmed, I'm ashamed, they're operating in that feelings level. So that's kind of a category that you can say, okay, we're talking in this level. I'm noticing this behavioral level, but I recognize there's a heart level that I haven't got tapped into and that we want to tap into. Um, so I, that's why I like to have these categories because it helps me as I'm processing the problem that I'm hearing. So let's move into the heart level. Um, I'm attempting to simplify a very big discussion on the heart. So what do I mean by heart? Our hearts are at the central point of who we are. It's the seat of our desires our beliefs and our choices and these things are interrelated in our hearts um, so scripture speaks of um, our heart using different anthropological terms right soul heart mind um, spirit but it's all talking about one level the heart when it speaks of these things um, and the functions are unified so the desires beliefs and choices of our heart are hugely important to the trajectory of our lives, right? Scripture speaks of our kind of our affection when it says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. It speaks of our minds when it says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Um, it speaks of our choices, our will, our volition, when it says, since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth. And then First Peter continues to say, from a pure heart, love one another constantly. So here is that relationship between um, our choices to obey God will also affect our love for other people. So our hearts are roots of a tree. They are the foundation of our house. And our hearts have a treasure that we all want to be searching for. So when our hearts are interrelated, these, these, these functions of the heart are interrelated, um, we are worshiping something. <laughs> um, we were made to worship God, right? We were made to love God. It's our desire, our affection. We were made to obey God in our choices. And we were made to know that he is, our, that he is God in our minds. So we were made to worship him with hearts inclined to God. But Adam and Eve didn't do this, <laughs> right? That's kind of when um, we, kind of the question of when did Eve really sin? Was it when she actually took a bite of the apple or was it in her heart before she actually took the apple from the tree? Um, so they plunged us into eternal separation from our creator. And by nature, the inclination of our hearts is now to love who? to choose what is right in our own eyes and to think that we know more than God. So the fall broke our ability to worship God rightly. So by the work of the Spirit, right, we are now able to love God, to obey God, um, and to know that he is God. So the model of care that I want, that I think we should be having in the church, is definitely a faith-centered model, right? Faith in Christ is truly the only real and lasting change available to us. And faith intersects here at the heart level, right? So faith in Christ will frame how you are caring for people. Are you thinking from a discipleship angle when you're meeting with someone, when you're getting breakfast with someone, when you're having coffee with someone? Or do they need to come to know Christ? Are you thinking more from an evangelistic angle? Now, that doesn't mean you're offering an invitation to ask Jesus into your heart every single time that you're getting coffee with somebody. But that does mean that you're working to help see, help them have a view of their self in light of who God is. Okay, so our, our, our counsel for people is pretty complex, but the end goal is simple, and this is where I want to simplify things for us. Our, our end goal is to help them grow in their worship of God. All right, so let's move in. Like, how would we enter in? Um, with someone. So we're going to start. I always hate it when I do this because I never know when to hit the space bar. Um, okay, so most often our students will first say something um, to us about how they are doing or how they are feeling, right? You'll hear things like, hey, I've been looking at porn or, hey, I'm, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. Um, parents will call you and say, I'm having trouble with Sally. She's rebelling against our authority. They will express how they are feeling, right? A lot, a lot more girls tend to be on that level. Like, I, I have just been feeling so anxious. I am so overwhelmed. Um, you may also notice those feelings. They become more withdrawn from the group or more numb um, towards your presence when you're around them. So that's more of a flattened emotion. But this is helpful um, because it's our starting ground for entering in with someone. 
Um, so I kind of like to put these together in, in the way of um, ladies, when we are walking by a store that we love and we see a shirt that is hanging on a mannequin and we think, oh, I need that. I'm, I'm going to go, I, I want that, right? You see the price tag and then you're like, but I really want this. You start thinking about all of the things that you can wear it to, um, all, you know, how often you can wear it. You start justifying like what you could wear it with, um, and then you go to the counter and you purchase it. <laughs> and then you get in the car, and what do you feel? Buyer's remorse. Yeah, guilt. I shouldn't have bought that shirt. I don't need that shirt. Why did I get that shirt? I have a thousand black shirts. Why did I buy another shirt? And there's so much guilt that comes up, right? So you call your friend. You're like, ah, do I need this shirt? Let me send you. I mean, you just send a picture with it on you. I mean, it's really cute, but I really don't need this shirt. What do you think? Do you like this shirt? And then you hope that they validate, really. You know, oh, yeah, you need that shirt. But I, I mean, I don't know that it was worth what you paid for it. You know, and you kind of start stuttering a little bit. So there it is. The choice to buy the shirt is the doing level, okay? The feeling level is the buyer's remorse. But as you kind of process, it goes down to the heart level, okay? My affections were to look good, right? I, 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 I really wanted that shirt. I loved the way that that looked. Um, so I made this choice. I had this internal dialogue of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy this shirt, um, and then you do it. Um, but then you kind of pull back and realize, actually, no, I don't need that, and I, I shouldn't have spent our budget on that. And you kind of have a shift of perspective, um, at the heart level. Oops, there we go. I've got all these little arrows. Okay, so Sissy provided us with some opportunities to kind of what I like to call physicalizing our faith. So her 54321 idea was so great. The exposure therapy where you're kind of fading into something and fading out of something was really helpful. Um, two great, uh, one book that I've heard often in this conference is that refresh book that Dr. David Murray wrote. Um, that is, uh, and then the female version, um, Refresh, is also a really great um, book. And so those are really good books that I think put the doing level um, really well for us, but he offers some super great spiritual nuggets that kind of get to the heart. Kind of really good books that kind of help put from um, that, that hit him in that way. Um, so those are really good books that kind of help put, flesh this out a little bit in our, in our care for people. So while you're exploring with people, it won't take you long to see these patterns of behavior. Um, and really, we'd be doing a, doing a huge disservice to our families, to our students, if we only focused on the heart. So there's some really helpful things that we can be doing um, on the doing level. And especially with our kids and our youth, this is a super rewarding level for them to see kind of the fruit of their labors. You know, the idea of, okay, I'm working to put off and put on the things of Christ and I'm getting benefit from it, and I can actually see some tangible um, results from this. One of them is service. Um, when I'm working with someone with anxiety, I'm always looking for ways to help them find opportunities to serve, serve the church, serve in the community. Why is that? Because I want to push them outside of themselves. Anxiety often gets in a loop where you're thinking so much about who? Yeah, push them outside of themselves um, and, to, and to get into um, service of others. Um, it's a good practice. But if we stop here, then we are only modifying behavior, right? And we're just creating many moralists, and we're never digging um, to the heart. So we do want to dig deeper. 
All right, but there's something so unfortunate that happens to us when we put on a counseling hat. We either become overeager, um, and we just start applying whatever we've been reading in our devotional life, what scriptures have been ringing true with us. I know last um, fall I um, worked to memorize um, Romans 6 and Ephesians 2. Y'all, for the next two months, everything related to Romans 6 and Ephesians 2, right? (laughs) Anyone who asked for my help, bless their heart, that's what they heard, right? Even if it didn't apply, because it was on my heart, and I wanted to, I was eager to share it um, with them. But I do want to caution you, so a biblical model of care is always going to be done in humility, right? And humility allows us to pull up a seat with someone and to put ourselves aside. Um, So I want you to avoid a few things, getting caught up in the details. When we do that, um, we will miss the forest for the trees. I want to be careful asking too many questions. Teenagers are so easily distracted. Um, So if we ask too many questions, we're going to derail them from the reason that they're even there. So really listen long, and when you need to ask questions, clarify that keeps them on track. Two notes on collecting data. All right, so we want to be careful not to interrogate people when they come and like, hey, I've got this problem, um, and I really need some help, and we just start data collecting, right? And that sounds more like an interrogation of what's been going on and can feel very judgmental and harsh. But I do think there's an exception to data collecting. Um, One is if someone shares a sexual struggle with you, like I'm looking at pornography um, or self-harm, and I've been cutting. I want... You do need to data collect early on those. So there's three questions that I always ask. How often? Since when? And what kind? Especially with pornography, you want to know what kind of pornography they're looking at. Not the graphics of the pornography, but is it, um, you know, is it homosexual pornography? Is it um, uh, aggressive pornography? Um, What type of pornography are they looking at? Um, Is it digital pornography? Um, Which is most likely what people are looking at today. But those, um, those matter. The other thing with cutting um, and any type of self-harm, you want to know how often they're doing it and, um, and kind of how long that they have been doing it. Is this something that they just tried last week? Um, how long have they been thinking about doing it? Um, is this something that's been going on for a year and they've never told anyone? Um, you see how when, you, when someone's been cutting and they're getting the endorphin release from that for a year, I mean, you're looking at a much bigger problem than when they just started last week. Um, when I worked in a psychiatric hospital, um, I was doing the crisis care of people, and they'd immediately come to the hospital. So I was helping patients that were in um, psychosis most often or severe suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation. Um, most often, the women that I saw who were suicidal were cutting. Um, s- but there was a spectrum of that as well. So are you cutting your wrists? Are you cutting um, the internal like areas of your thighs? I had guys coming in that were cutting their genitals. I mean, these are things that we want to, okay, this is a bigger issue than a superficial, right? Are you wanting to really hurt yourself, um, kill yourself, or are you just trying to feel something, okay? Um, There's also other forms of of self-harm, like pulling hair, picking skin. So we also kind of want to be aware that um, is this compounded with other forms of self-harm. Okay, so I don't want us to get... um, Nearsighted solutions. Um, we often do this when um, it's like, oh, well, that's just trivial and simple, right? So I'm just going to tell you what you should do about this problem instead of listening well. And uh, especially with students, we'll just shut them down, um, and we won't sit with them through the problem. All right, so biblical wisdom in the, ex- in the exploration. I want to separate um, empathy versus compassion. 
Um, the reason I think this is important because empathy, I think, is the ability to understand another person's feelings, and there's a time for that, right? But in counseling, we want to offer compassion and not just empathy. So empathy are kind of can be can often be perceived as kind of these shallow responses of like, "Oh, girl, me too. My husband does that all the time." Right, or I get it, that is so normal. Um, we just want to normalize their situation, but really, all we're doing is just you know, pat on the back like I get you, but I'm not going deeper with them. So, compassion is this act of love that shares a concern for the suffering that they're experiencing. So, it's kind of grounded in some type of truth. So, an example of this could be that is really hard, and it sounds like it's even harder for you because that was done by someone that you love so much. Do you see how that moves in a little bit more into their experience? There's a difference. The process of listening, what are they emphasizing as really important to them? What do they fail to mention when they're talking to you? Where are they most tender? Where do tears kind of come up in their eyes? Where do their eyes hit the floor? Ask open questions that kind of invite them to share more information. Tell me more about when you started to feel this way. When did you do next? What was that like for you? Right? The purpose in a man's heart is like a deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Proverbs 25. Okay, so I like to call this the gospel gap. As you continue to enter in, um, and they're sharing more with you, you are listening for the gaps, right, in their understanding of self God is and how he relates to them. All right, so 2 Peter tells us that God's grace is the source of godly living, and he has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, which gives us reason to work against the idols of our hearts and to grow in the grace of God. So blind spots are usually exposed in our suffering, right? When we're when we're experiencing circumstances that are super uncomfortable, um, when we just feel off about a certain situation. So as they are sharing, um, you're listening for how, they, how they're interpreting their problems or their lives, right? What's dominating the story? What dominates their prayer requests? What dominates the conversation in the small group? What dominates their thought patterns? How do we identify those blind spots are these themes that um, I so cleverly use three Ps. I never get to do that. Um, I'm never that clever. Uh, so God's purpose for them, who are they most secure in? God's provision for them, what is their trust currently in, or who is their trust currently in? God's process for them. Um, how do they view the purpose of this experience or the situation? Do they trust that God is at work even when it feels like he's not? Right. So in other words, you are listening for themes that are coming out in the story that they're telling you. You're not getting caught into the details of the story, but you're thinking a bigger picture of who God is to them in this. And these are the gaps that need to be penetrated with biblical truth. All right, so in ministry, the trajectory of care must dig deeper into the heart instead of just skimming along the surface of the problem. So if we're always talking about the problem, we're never getting deeper, right? If your students are coming to you with, with porn, if you're always talking about porn, you're never going to get to the heart, okay? 
Um, and often this is when our Bibles do get pushed aside because our Bibles don't always give us specific ways like, hey, if you're struggling with this, this is where you go. If that were true, then our Bible would just be a self-help book, and it's not. It's greater than that. Um, so we don't want to use scripture like that. We want our students to be rewriting a narrative into the narrative in which God has written for us. All right, so our prime, well, let me say this. Um, this does not mean that scripture, sorry, let me just move forward because I said all this. <laughs> I realize that I'm about to run a risk of sounding overly simplistic, but we must keep their hearts set on our primary solution and where it comes from, right? So our primary solution for our problems is Christ, his work on the cross, his present reign over the kingdom, the gift of his spirit, which empowers our hearts to worship him, and then his promise to come again. So our theology is constantly shaping our trajectory and our view from a heart level up. Okay. So I know that most problems do not go away when we become a Christian. Um, our belief system, our affections, our new, cho- our, our renewed choices, um, those things do not just all of a sudden wipe away all of our problems, right? We may want to love God more than ourselves. We want to trust his work in our lives, even when it hurts. Um, uh, but we don't always reconcile these things as easily as, um, as we want to. So when we're starting to dig deeper, we, we move past open questions, and we want to start asking questions that cause them to reflect um, on what you know, what is going on. Um, so questions um, like this. So Sissy referred to anger yesterday as a secondary emotion. So anger is obviously invisible. You see someone angry. Um, a good question to enter into that is, what are you protecting? Right? If it's secondary, then there's primary emotions under that that you want to move into. What is your anger protecting right now? Often for me, because I'm such a neat freak and organized all the time, that I get angry when my kids make a mess with their toys. And my husband will look at me and say, Morgan, what are you protecting? myself, my routine, my schedule, my feeling like I've got everything under control, right? It moves in. What are you so afraid might happen? What do you think? Why do you think it's so difficult for you to trust God? What aspects are out of your control in this, right? So it moves in with more reflective questions. We want to help shift their perspective to God because this offers hope, right? Often when we hear someone's story, we realize that their whole life view has actually seen God as a character in their story, right? Rather than they as, I don't want to say a character, but a person in his story. <laughs> so we want to set our mind on the things above. We want to reorient, reorient their perspective to God and away from self. All right, so we want to change their posi- position and encourage repentance. That's a word that our youth do not use very often. <laughs> But we want to speak like the Bible speaks. So we do want to encourage repentance. We want to encourage them to keep active in the body of Christ. So how often do our youth stop coming to youth ministry when they're frustrated? Right? They just, I don't want to go. I don't want to do anything. Right? We get isolated. That doesn't change when we become adults. Um, when we're dealing with, um, with, with hard things, we want to pull away. Um, so that's when extra texts, extra phone calls um, really help people back in. They need community. They need to be a part of the body of Christ. Um, All right, and then when you just get stuck and you're like, I just don't know where to go, um, these are four things that you can keep in mind. Um, You can continue to ask open, clarifying questions. Um, Hey, is there a place in scripture that you have found helpful during this time? Probably say no. 
but I haven't even opened my Bible to them. <laughs> and that's okay. That's an opportunity for you to move in and say, hey, let's, let's do that together. Let's find a place in Scripture that we can walk through together. Follow the strongest emotions. We also do not want to go KGB on all their sin. We, we want to consider what um, is kind of most important at that time, what they can handle. Um, we don't want to just start knocking out the walls of all the things you're doing wrong. Okay, so in order for us to be better counselors, we must look to Christ, who is our great counselor, right? Jesus was intentional to meet people where they were. His posture was humble. His invitation was to come near. His request was to follow me. His presence was, I am with you. His provision was for both the body and the soul. That's why we don't want to neglect the doing level, which also affects the physical level and vice versa. Right? Jesus did not exclusively speak to the heart. He provided water. When a woman was thirsty, Jesus provided food when someone was hungry. He provided healing when they were sick, right? He counseled his disciples to forgive and to confront. These are doing things. But his focus was the heart, right? And his approach was always truth and grace. I want to share a little bit of um, kind of my story and why I'm super excited that you guys, um, why I should, I shouldn't say I'm excited, why I'm so passionate about you guys being in the life of your, of your student. Um, but throughout my entire life, I've been involved in many forms of help, okay? So when I was um, five years old, I saw my mom be killed in a car accident um, on Highway 20. I experienced that car accident with her, and I went into had trauma counseling for most of my adolescent years. Um, I received a lot of academic tutoring after that because I had really poor comprehensive skills um, in school. The Department of Family Services was in my home a lot growing up because I accumulated so many tardies over the next two years because my dad just wouldn't get me to school on time. I attended Al-Anon. Many of your teens may know what that is. Um, for other teenagers, many of you may know who that is. It's for it's a group it's a group counseling program for kids who have parents um, who have alcohol and drug addiction. We did family therapy after my dad went to rehab when I was 16 um, for the first time. And I really am so grateful for all of the different helpers that I had in my life. Every single one of them helped me in some way. But to this day, when I think about the people that helped me the most in my life who were the most influential to my story and my relationship to God were my youth leaders. So the night that I found my dad um, after his attempted suicide, he ended up in ICU. The first person, well, after 911, <laughs> the first person I called was my youth pastor. He happened to live two blocks away from my house, um, so it was very convenient for me to call him Within five minutes, he was in his truck, and he was down at my house. He loved my dad. He loved my family. His wife actually slept on our couch that night, and he sat in the waiting room at ICU with my stepmother. When I was terrified to confront my dad after his um, bout in ICU, he had to stay there for a few days, and then he went into a um, 
facility that watched him for um, about 10 days because of the suicide attempt. Um, I knew that I, I was 16, 17 at the time, and I knew that I was not going to go home, um, that if he continued to drink, that he had to get help. Um, I was terrified. How do I, a 16-year-old, confront my dad about this situation? Um, you know who met me in the parking lot? My youth pastor. He prayed with me in the parking lot. He encouraged me as I walked through those doors by myself. It was terrifying, but I felt supported by the body of Christ. So the day that my dad went to rehab, (laughs) my youth pastor and our associate pastor at the time drove my family to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, The rehab facility in Atlanta told my family, y'all might be the first to show up in a church van. (laughs) But I... um, I got home after my dad, he stayed in Atlanta for several months, um, and I, the next week, you know, I was kind of continuing with normal life. I was playing soccer. I was, you know, in high school. I had my friend group. I didn't really talk much about what was going on at home because it just was kind of my normal, but also things just hit the fan, and I didn't really know how to deal with it. Um, and then he started calling me every single week. It was the female um, youth person on my staff, on the youth staff. She started taking me out to breakfast. She would drive me to school. Um, She was making sure that I was actually involved in the Bible study of the girls who were my age. So I went to a youth group where everyone was in in private school, and I was the only public school girl in um, our our class in youth group. So it was kind of awkward for me to show up, especially with the baggage that I was bringing into this. Um, It was really hard to relate um, to their problems, but she knew that I needed them, and they needed me. So she encouraged me to continue to be there and to not give up on the community in which God has placed me in. So the work you are doing in the lives of your students is kingdom work. It often feels very slow (laughs) and monotonous work, and often you just want to say, do you get it? Do you see it? He is better. And it's hard. It's hard work. But you are offering the riches of Christ, and that goes far beyond any other help, okay? So when you speak the gospel to your students, speak it in such a surprisingly good way. Speak it in the way that the gospel has ministered to your hearts and to your lives. If you are abiding in Christ, the sweetness of the gospel is near to you. Let your students see that. Speak it into the gaps that they have in their lives. So these are the references that if you want to take a picture of this, go for it. But um, that I would recommend. Um, I put a few out there on the table, um, but these are a little bit more. Um, I do have probably about five minutes to take some questions, and I do want to give you guys a break so that um, Scotty can come up um, and do his part. So does anybody want to ask questions, or we can talk quietly after?
yeah, I can imagine. I've not worked in a treatment facility like that, but when I worked in the psych hospital, um, especially when I would have adolescents come in, I would tend to take that home with me more than I would um, some of the adults that I was seeing. Um, but, yeah, I would say that, you know, when we are called to bear the burdens of other people, it's very difficult to separate when we are walking with them and yet still depending on the strength of Christ in all of us. <laughs> Um, and also trying to bear too much of the weight on ourselves alone. Um, so the wisdom I would have in that is to be in constant prayer for your own heart as you are helping other people, um, and also be very aware of the times that you may need to separate yourself um, from, from situations when it gets too much. Um, because when you are seeing really hard situations back to back to back to back, we aren't called to bear, we were not really able to bear um, all of that weight, right? Um, it's, it's, if you, if you guys have done work in those, in those, in these types of situations, then you know um, that there, there is time for rest and for separation. Um, but yeah, I would just be cautious to gauge your own heart and what's going on um, with yourself as you're entering new people. Yeah. Any other questions? I would love, I mean, I'm a sip a cup of coffee girl from you, so like the having ans question and answer in the front is actually really difficult. <laughs> so if you ever want to come talk, I would love to do that. Um, but before we end and we take a break, I would like to pray for all of you. Um, so thank you. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, it is a privilege to be your people. It is a privilege to know you, and it is a privilege to be used by you. Lord, I'm so thankful that as we um, are called to be leaders, that we are not called to be leaders in our own strength, but we are called to be leaders in the strength of Christ. Father, I pray for the hearts in this room that as we leave and we continue to do ministry and enter into the context, very complicated context of other people, that we would do so not in our own strength, but in your strength. Father, but would we also do it as Christ did it. Lord, Christ left his seat for all. And he walked with us. Father, we are so thankful that you did not ask us to come to where Christ was. May we do the same for the people that we're ministering to. May we go to, to where they are. And may we not ask them to come to where we are. Father, we are thankful for your son, Jesus. May his name be honored and praised in our work. And it's in his name that we pray this prayer. Amen.